Hello, Australia. Welcome to Wish You'd Known. It's a podcast for financial advisors focusing on life risk insurance here in Australia and New Zealand. We've got a few Kiwis listening. G'day. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Primarily for uh, those who want to learn more about life risk insurance and those who might be new to the industry. Uh, So thank you, Danny Visser, for joining us today. Thanks, Glenn. And look, this podcast that we're doing is really to cut to the chase of what's important and really talk about what people wish they'd known, so experts, when they started their advice journey. And today we're talking to Phil Thompson and Phil was really going to chat to us about his transition from doing more in his engagement to doing less. Interesting. But it wouldn't happen without our sponsor, Glenn. There we go. So thank yeah. you to uh, One Path Zurich for getting behind uh, this episode of Wish You'd Known. Uh, it is an industry uh, initiative. We want to involve everybody in the industry. And I just want to personally thank uh, One Path Zurich for getting behind the podcast. And we'll put a link in the show notes uh, for their online resources. So make sure you check that out. You ready to have a chat with Phil, Danny? Let's do it. All right. So thanks for joining us, Phil. You've been on a little bit of a journey through 2020. Do you want to talk us through what you've been doing? Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Um, yeah, so 2020 was a, a big year for everyone um, with all that happened. Uh, on top of coronavirus and everything, we transitioned our business. So went through a full rebrand um, of the business, um, going from Thompson Financial Services to Sky Wealth. Um, and as a part of that journey, we kind of moved from being a holistic advice firm, um, kind of doing everything and anything um, for clients into a risk specialist firm. So we just do insurance now. And Phil, talk to us about your process because I know one thing that you've done really well and I want it to be an encouragement to the advisors listening is the commitment fee. So straight off the bat, Talk to us about your advice process, being a specialist, being a specialist risk-only advisor now. Yeah, so we, um, like our end-to-end process is we start off with a 15-minute phone call with, you know, anyone and anyone who wants to talk about insurance um, and who we get referred to. Um, And then from that 15-minute chat, it's either they want to consider insurance and, and go ahead with an insurance proposal. Now, it's an SOA, but we call it an insurance proposal because no one knows what a statement of advice is. Um, and we charge a fee for that. So straight away from that 15-minute phone call, we send them an email with a link to a, a invoice um, for $220 for singles or $330 for couples. And then from there, they go and complete a, a fact find online and, and we go to the SOA. So just on that, I want to drill deeper because a lot of people might be thinking about this. Is that fee payable? Once you pay it, that's it? Or is it, I I know a lot of advisors might rebate commitment fees. What are you doing with that fee and how are you positioning it with the client? Yeah, so we, I mean, we looked at a whole bunch of different models. Um, We originally went to a really bare bones proposal and did less work and then they committed and were agreeing to a $500 fee. Um, we just felt like we were doing basically an SOA with no fee or commitment. And so our fee is just a straight fee, no refund. They go ahead, they go ahead, they don't, they don't. And do you find that that's actually, once people get past that paywall, uh, if we want to call it that, it actually gets more buy-in so you get a better quality client? 
Yeah, I definitely get a better quality client. Um, but it also just, for the client's point of view and, and the way I talk to clients about it every single time is if you choose not to go ahead, well, you've paid a fee for our time. We internally, we lose money on that. We, we don't make a profit on that. Um, but they know that they've paid a fee. They can walk away and not feel bad. Um, you know, back in the day when we did risk only um, and we didn't do it at a fee, you know, clients would feel awkward not going ahead and there was this kind of awkwardness of, oh, well, do I need to pay you now or not? Now it's like they walk away or they don't um, and they've paid us a fee. So there's no awkwardness between us or the clients. So it gives them the confidence to make a decision of what they what's best for them. And Phil, how many people don't actually proceed when you let them know that there is that commitment fee? Like how many people go, well, no, I'm, I don't really want to pay that, so I'm going to walk away now? Yeah, we get pretty warm leads. So most of our leads are referred from, you know, external professionals. Um, so most clients who come to us or prospects who come to us, they're coming to us because they want insurance. Um, and so a lot of people go ahead if they're, if they're keen to go ahead. It's really a barrier. The $220 is really a barrier for, for clients. And that $220, uh, I'm just re kind of being very clear for my own self and the sake of this conversation, paid $220, they commit, they get an SOA, you present the SOA. At that point, um, if they walk away, that's all good. They can take their SOA. Uh, if they go ahead and you do applications and it's a declining underwriting, there's still no refund of fee. Is that correct? No. So we, yeah, so our end-to-end our -end process is pay a fee, proposal fee, 220 or 330. We get the SOA. From that SOA forward, we get paid. Either we get paid a commission or they, um, they pay us a fee. So the way we word it is the fee is $1,100 if we go ahead from that SOA and we don't get paid and there's three reasons that happens, they choose not to go ahead, they get declined or they cancel their policy within two years. Um, and so if any of those things happen, we don't get paid. So we charge them a fee um, for that. But I mean, that's happened for I don't know, twice in the last you know, 500 policies we've put in place. So you're really adding a lot of value to the time you're spending providing the insurance advice. Yeah, no, Which I, I mean, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. Yeah, none of our clients ever question the, like, it, so if they get declined for anything we know about, so they've already put it, we've got a pretty comprehensive pre assessment. So if we know about something, we think they're maybe, you know, on the edge, we don't charge them a fee because we'll take that risk. Um, and there are generally other options or there is some cover available. Um, but yeah, if they get, if they choose not to go ahead, get fully declined because, you know, they, told the insurer that they use cocaine on the weekend, well, then, well, everyone gets annoyed at each other. <laughs> we charge them $1,100 um, and then we walk away. They, they're not insured and we still lose money on that engagement. Yeah, it's. I think it's just fascinating. Um, you know, the whole lift thing, it's in tow at the moment. How's your business uh, in terms of revenue with that 66% upfront, including GST, um, and how have you kind of justified potentially that slight dip in revenue with other efficiencies being either tech stuff or the commitment fee? Like what's the wash up been for you being a risk only advisor now? Uh, it was, I was pretty fortunate that I was not, I, we did like 10% of our business was a risk pre-LIF. 
So I didn't right. kind of know the good old days. Um, I was never swimming in commissions before Lyft. Um, and so after, I mean, we're, we're profitable, but it's, I mean, it's pretty slim margins at the moment with 66% upfront. Um, and for us, it's just a, a volume business. So we need to be talking to a lot of clients um, to, to be making or to be breaking even or making money. So I guess it's an interesting time just to follow on from from Glenn's question. It's an interesting time to get niche and just do insurance specialisation. And how is that actually? What well, I guess first I'd like to understand what prompted that decision to go into that specialisation. Like why did you say, oh, now's the right time with Lyft in full swing to actually drill down on insurance? Yeah, good. Yeah, good question. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm stupid, but my my theory. <laughs> I didn't say that um, out loud. I just thought yeah. it. <laughs> my theory is, you know, I feel like the industry, and I, and I was heading this way as a holistic advice firm. You, you, I feel like you can't be half doing risk. I feel like you need to be all in or all out. Um, and so that's my view: is there's not enough money in it f- to be dabbling in risk. It's a huge. Um, it's a huge risk from a compliance point of view. If you make, if you stuff something up on a million dollar life policy, well, it's a million dollars on your PI claim. Um, so it's a big kind of compliance concern if you're half doing it. So my view is that most people will be leaving that space. And so there's a, there's a place to move into that space to be working with more volume of clients and just solely work on the efficiencies of the business. So that's all I ever think of is efficiencies. So, with the uh, volume of clients, like how many kind of new business meetings are you having per week? Yeah, so we we do probably like 15 prospect phone calls. Like I'm just looking at my calendar. It's probably 15 yeah. this week, new prospects. SOA meetings, like this week's pretty light on and we've got, I've got five SOA meetings um, and that's because this week I had booked, I was meant to be in Sydney this week. Um, so, that got um, closed off. So it's it's a good number. We do, yeah. My my ideal is around seven to ten SOA meetings a week. Yeah, and okay. So if I want to go back to your, your risk process. Initial phone call, fifteen minutes. Are we right fit? You know, lay the land. This is how we kind of work. Engagement, two hundred and twenty dollars. Uh, you basically buy an SOA. Uh, then we got up to the SOA presentation. Once the SOA is presented there's a line in the sand where they commit to saying we will go ahead. What happens after that? And I want to get an idea, like you've got a big volume, like who's in your team and what are they doing in the team? Yeah. So the the team, just to answer the team question. So we've got kind of two people in um, the SOA strategy. So a para planner who's writing the SOAs and someone assisting me um, developing the strategies. Um, and we've got a very um, clear needs analysis process, very clear kind of if this happens, that happens within the business. Um, and predominantly, it's around underwriting. <clears throat> we pre-assess every client. If we get the same terms for every insurer, then, you know, as long as it fits our parameters, that's the recommendation. So two people in generating the advice, I'm helping, making sure that's compliant and, and appropriate, and I'm giving the advice. Um, and we've got two people full-time in applications, so dealing with the submissions um, and then and then another person in the, in the business kind of floating across all different bits of the business. And just on that personnel part, Phil, what are your thoughts around you're doing your um, SOAs and power planning in-house? What are your thoughts around 
outsourcing that if there's someone listening who thinks, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm just starting, it might be more efficient to outsource. What would your feedback or advice be on that? Yeah, I mean, I outsourced for the first eight years of my business. So, and it, and it, and it made sense to outsource um, my power planning. The only reason I'm in, in doing it in-house now is just the volume. If you don't have the volume, you can't. It's, it's really difficult to make the economics work to have an in-house power planner unless you're doing a lot of business. How are you personally with that amount of volume, how are you keeping track? Like I remember like, you know, I've not been an advisor now for a couple of years and I'll see an old client in the street and I'll instantly think, oh, how's that left elbow exclusion going? <laughs> like, So it, from a human element, like how do you personally remember or is it just, you know, you've, you know, file notes are so important, but, you know, file notes are so, so important when you've got volume because you need to read back from the last meeting and, and make sure that they feel like they're the only client. Yeah. Yeah. What sort of tech stack do you have to bring it all together? Yeah. yeah and your tech stack. It's a process. So, you know, we, you know, we've made plenty of mistakes. You know, I've just hired a, a new staff member for the first two months of their work was to audit every SOA um, in 2020. And that was a good learning curve of going, okay, what do we stuff up? We grew so quickly. There were mistakes there. How do we fix them and make sure they don't happen going forward? So it's all about processes. All I think about now, my job is just to sit in front of clients and and work on the processes of the business. So and every time an app gets submitted, the, the staff member who does that um, sends me an email with a with a very comprehensive list of this is what was recommended. Was there anything adjusted? Was there, you know, all of these things in our CRM, we have lists of exclusions or expected terms. So if we get different terms, my staff know kind of how to manage that. And then we send a link to the clients to book in a phone call with me. So it's all about how do we build out really good processes. Um, and because we know exactly where our clients are going the whole time and where they can jump off if they want to jump off, but we know the next steps for every single client. Um, it does make it very easy to build really robust processes. And in that um, process development, and you, you you talk a lot around iterating things over time and improving them over time, so it sounds like that's what's maybe happening within your processes. What's the most impactful change you've made for your productivity? Good question. I think maybe the most impactful was um, having a really good CRM system. And I'm not talking about Xplan. We don't use Xplan for the CRM functionality or, or advice software. We just needed a really good CRM that helped us track where clients are up to and what stage they're up to. What CRM are you using? So we use Pipedrive um, for right. our CRM. So, you know, I can look at any day. I can go in and look at our submissions. Like, so what's in suspense? And we know exactly, I can see, you know, the number that's in waiting for medicals. I can see the numbers that are waiting for underwriting. So we know exactly where they're up to. And if they're moving across that spectrum really slowly, what's the issue? So that's the biggest impact is having a really good, robust CRM. So is it fair to say once you're effectively presented the SOA, the client comes back and has questions and they agree to proceed, they might not get to talk to Uncle Phil unless there's an exclusion or a sensitive exclusion? What's, uh, what's the process with using the team to carry the underwriting? Yeah, I try not to call myself Uncle Phil because it's a bit seedy, but um, <laughs> but you can use that. Oh, term, Uncle right? Phil. Yeah, I will. <laughs> um, 
No, we, we, throughout our process, we have like automated emails that come from me. So they clients do feel like I'm communicating with them. We've got like still got videos of me through those automated emails. So they do feel like I'm communicating throughout the process, but it's not me getting on the phone unless it's needed. Like at, and it, at every point in time, we offer, hey, if you want to chat to Phil, here's a link, book in a time, have a chat to oh, I've got yeah. one this afternoon. You know, your business, you know, 2020, you decided to double down on risk only. You, you know, you're doing maybe 20 appointments a week, call it, you know, new business or whatever that might end up being. I know from having my own kind of predominantly risk only business, there is a tsunami of reviews coming. And I found, you know, most risk policies, you know, if you if you never heard from the client again, the organic kind of touch point, a client might come out of the blue in three or four years because, you know, nothing's really changed and then they want to review. So you've got a scenario of reviews coming and you've probably got a tsunami of claims coming. So are those processes ones that in that are in the back of your mind to to preempt? Yeah, so claims is is an area that we need to we need to build out a bit better. And I mean, to be honest, my thinking with regards to claims is like my communication to clients is you want to be speaking to a specialist. So a part of my thinking these days with claims is maybe we do engage a specialist to help our clients with the claims um, because we're not we we write a lot of insurance business. And so we, we're experts. We know if you've got a health issue, what the best insurer to go with. With claims, we don't. We're not doing the volume of claims. Over time, we may do that in-house because we'll become experts. Um, but that's an area that we're still working on. We've, we've only got two or three claims. Um, the review process is something, yeah, we, we make a promise and a commitment to our clients that every two years we'll circle back around. We don't do meetings for meeting sakes. So if, if, you don't, if your needs don't change, then great. We don't need to update anything. Um, but every two years, we'll do a review of your policy and and update it if we need to. So, Phil, I think I just want to pick up something you've said there that's really interesting is around building out a claims process. Because from our research that we did, we did a lot of benchmarking and we found that one of the highest drivers of client referrals was actually a, a good claimant experience. So on average, um, claimants who'd had a positive experience were referring about seven of their contacts to um, the advisor or the insurance writer. So I think just for everyone listening, it's really important to think about you know what does a claims process look like and preempt that and make sure that it is sleek because uh, I guess it's the, the promise that we build the sale on and it does deliver you know, in terms of even just um, client engagement, if that if you can get that piece right. And the other thing that I, I want to just talk about is you said that you've got a lot of automated kind of correspondence and there is a feeling sometimes when I speak to practitioners around that might make you a bit robotic. How do you get around making sure that automated communication doesn't feel and sound robotic? And what would your views on that be? Does it does it make your unky feel a robo or? <laughs> uh, well, no, because all it is is it may. Uh, my view on the world is if you've got a very clear like next steps for every client, um, then you should know what that email is going to be to them. Like when I need to book in an, a, an advice meeting, all I need them to do is click a link and book a time that needs that they need to book. Um, so an email that all gets automatically sent out from me saying, "Hey, we've." 
prepared your advice, let's book in a meeting. That doesn't need to be personal. Obviously, it's got their name on it. It doesn't say, hi, brackets name. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we know where they're going. So we know the email that needs to be sent. If you've got like 10 different kind of fork points in your business where oh, they, we could be doing insurance, super, and investment, so we need a specific email for that. Or if we're doing insurance and super, we need another email for that. That needs to be personalized because you're going to look like an idiot saying all three of the things instead of just what, what it is for the client. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I would just say a lot of those issues, Danny, I believe can uh, be uh, solved and addressed with language. So, for example, when I had my business, I told my team, the words kind regards in an email is not allowed in this office. We're not reading the Declaration of Independence. We're having a conversation. And even like, I would rarely use the word dear, like dear Danny, be like, hi, Danny, or hey, Danny, because I think Mm, by saying, hey, Danny, it's already very personal, like Phil's automatically typing it. And I've never said to you when you've left, you know, lunch or something, kind regards, Danny. Like, it's <laughs> yours sincerely. <laughs> yours sincerely. Have a good day. Uh, so I think the language is Did very you get important. Get out of here. Move on. When you are customizing your templates, write your templates as if you were writing it to one person. And we need to get out of our own way. Like, we, I'm not the most important person in the relationship. So if mm. a client knows that I've got a process where it's very efficient and I can deliver that advice in a cost-effective manner for them, like, but but what that means is you might get an automated email from me that looks personalised, but really all all it is is hey, book in a meeting, click on this link and book in the time that works for you. Like, mm. well, that's actually easier for the client. Like, so get out of my own way. Don't think I'm the most important. Where the words I use needs to be like. So personalized. Mm. Hey, how is your, you know, how is the vet clinic with your dog? Is your dog okay? And then ramble on. The client yeah. wants one thing. They want advice. Let's get it done. Yeah. In wrapping up, I've got three fast questions to ask. And maybe Danny can think of a couple yeah. for her final well, I've, ones. I've got one juicy one, actually. Right, you do your yeah, juicy I'll one do my first. juicy one because I think, you know, you've really obviously talked to the benefits. Specialization has helped your efficiencies. But, you know, I'd love to understand from your perspective, a lot of people are a little bit concerned about specialisation with the compliance element and I'd really like to understand how you've managed to stay within the flags, like do less but make sure that you're really, you know, covering, you know, all the tick boxes and making sure that you're not not leaving anything sort of that you should be doing outstanding. Yeah, and I, I will say, Phil, compliance is spelt C-O-M. No, joking. Who are you uh, Who are you licensed through and how long have you been with the licensee before you yeah, answer Dan's so compliance Yeah, so licensed with Synchron. Been there for uh, five years, I think. In terms of how we manage um, compliance, I mean, it's the actual, it's the reason why I specialise is because compliance. Because if I stuff something up in one of the five areas of advice I'm giving, because I, you know, just didn't do that extra PD day, then then it's non-compliant, like, and I lose my license. But if I specialise and I'm an expert in this area, my obligation now is to consider the broader implications of my advice, and we do. But the way I think about it is, every client isn't an insurance policy for me. Every client phone call, new client phone call, they're not an insurance policy. They're a client. And so if I can engage them, understand what they want 
And if they want holistic advice and I, you know, preach holistic advice and the value of it, then I'll introduce them to an advisor who is a holistic advisor and say they're the great fit for you because you need broader advice. And so for me, compliance is all about making sure you're, you're true to brand, you do what you say you do, instead of saying I'm a holistic advisor, but really you're just funneling him into a, you know, the same super fund and the same insurer and saying, look, we will look at your broader goals and objectives, but really at the top of their head, it's just how much commission or, you know, what can we roll their super balance in and how much fun are they? Um, and so making sure that we do what we say we're going to do um, and we are also considering that broader aspect and referring on if we need to. Mm, so by being specialised, it enables you to be far more tailored in your advice or not deal with them at all. Yeah, exactly. And we, we refer heaps of clients out. Mm. And I think it goes without saying, uh, particularly from my own experience, having a well-defined process and advice offering ordinarily means better compliance because the process is the same for every client. The key touch points are the different parts. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I would encourage anyone to uh, really work on your systems and processes. And the Fazier Code of Ethics, um, like under, under Standard 10, if you, if you want to read the reference guide, um, under Standard 10 it says you, you mustn't give advice unless you well, have a high level of relevant knowledge and skills. My argument is a holistic advisor, can they have the relevant knowledge and skills in all areas of advice they're giving? It's very difficult to do that. Mm -hmm. And I would say that if I'm not providing advice in the areas of, you know, investment bonds or, you know, self-managed super funds, I shouldn't be doing that because I don't have mm -hmm. the knowledge and skill and expertise to do that if I'm not doing self-managed super funds every day. I think specialisation is kind of encouraged within the FASIA code of ethics more than discouraged. And I guess we haven't really touched on it, but the proof is always in the pudding. So can you talk to us, Phil, around what the um, the pudding has been for you? Like, has it been a good move for your business to, to become specialised? Like, what results have you seen as a consequence? Mm, yeah, I mean, yeah, at the end of the day, it's all about, like, we're in a, I'm in a business, I've got to make money. Um, and so if specialising was going to net me a worse return, um, then maybe it's not a good idea. But yeah, for me, I've grown, the business has grown significantly. We grew 250% last year during during Corona. Um, and, you know, we, there was a few things, specialization aside, like we were already virtual pre-COVID. But yeah, it's it's been huge. It's been huge for referral partners, sending more leads out than I ever got, you know, prior to 2020. So having that engagement with clients and saying, well, I am not the right fit for you. Here is someone who might be is is helped me be more confident when talking to clients and as yeah it's growing the business significantly mm. so the pudding's there and it's good pudding yeah it's a good pudding <laughs> it's delicious uh, a couple of quick questions how high touch is your team with insurance policies if there's a dishonor are you personally writing to clients or are you letting the insurance process catch them the insurer's process catch them yeah we we do it all yeah yeah yeah, yeah. sweet and I, I think that's really good. Like a lot of businesses, they let the insurers catch the um, dishonors and all that stuff. It's just if you've got the systems and processes, it's a really good touch point with your clients to keep that relationship there. My second question is, well, it was first going to be, you know, is a, a risk-only advice business not profitable given commission debate and all that? And I think uh, emphatically 
the answer from you is the yes, it is. The pudding is getting bigger. The pudding is there. But what's your thoughts if fast forward three years and insurance commissions are gone? Yeah. Interesting. It's a good question. I think I don't think we will have the same business yeah. um, for sure. We're not going to be in risk. We Our average age is 30 years old. Um, our average premium is three grand. So it's going to be very difficult for us to put in front of a client two and a half grand per person and say, hey, pay us a fee um, to help you do this. Um, and given that the profitability on upfront is quite limited, we then need to actually increase that unless we're going to have an ongoing fee arrangement. So in my view, my business is is not sustainable on with, with our commission. Now, that said, I mean, I would just pivot. We'll specialise in something else. We've captured a whole bunch of 30-year-olds that need other advice that instead of referring them out, we'll start doing. Yeah. Uh, And my last question, and I like to ask a lot of advisors this uh, because it is an industry podcast around insurance. Who are you mainly writing and why? Yeah, good question. Um, So, we wrote... 70% 70% of our business last year with BT and that's um, and that was on most of it's on level premium for our, you know, 30-year-olds. Um, so that's going to bite us in the bum. <laughs> How's the discussion reselling insurance to all those clients this year? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's going to be interesting. But, I mean, we're a good, we're a pretty good spread. We, we predominantly move to, like, our decision tree for insurers is underwriting first. It's always underwriting. Yeah. If they're all the same, then it's just, you know, as long as they meet our parameters of what we think is important, then it comes down to price and, and a few features. And then if there is, you know, some family history, we might tailor the advice to that. But so we're kind of writing across the board. We are thinking a bit about IP sustainability and and do we write with with smaller insurers for the next, you know, eight months because that old book's going to close. So there is like definitely a discussion and thought around, you know, are the big the big players in town just going to close that old IP book and just jack up the price? That's that's my concern. But didn't they sell us guaranteed renewability <laughs> at one stage? Yeah. <laughs> Look, Phil, my last question, given this podcast is for new insurance entrants, is what did you wish you'd known when you started writing insurance advice that you can on advice to someone listening? Yeah, it's a good question. So I. I actually would have liked to have been mentored better when I first started. Uh, I definitely didn't have as much kind of external experience and mentorship in insurance. And to be honest, I hired that. Like my staff, I got someone on staff who's advised for 15 years, risk specialist, another one for 10 years who's a risk specialist, an admin support who's been in insurance for 15 years. So I've actually just hired that experience um, in-house. But if I was starting out, I would definitely just partner with a mentor to really just go through, um, you know, the ins and outs of, of mm. insurance advice. It's pretty complex. Mm. All the nuances that you don't realise until the rubber hits the road. So, yeah, great advice. Connect to a mentor and listen into the Wish You'd Known podcast well, for all the tidbits. It just speaks to the reason yeah. that, you know, I had the vision for the My Risk Advisor Facebook group mm. was to, you know, help transfer this risk knowledge to the next generation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for joining us, Phil. It's been so good to chat to you and it sounds like, you know, what you're doing is becoming and already really successful and so it speaks to the fact that our, you know, profession is really vibrant and, and has 
a future. So thanks so much for joining us. And My thanks. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. All right. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thank you so much for listening today. If you are in the advice world and you've made it this far, my question to you is, who can you forward this episode to? Thank you so much for listening. This was made possible because of My Risk Advisor. You can head over to the Facebook group, My Risk Advisor, and join in on the conversation.